This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hello. Well, speaking of hello, I want to tell you about HelloFresh, a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. Look, I get it. Cooking is daunting, and it's kind of weird as well. So you just, like, take a bunch of stuff, cut them with a knife, and then heat them up in, like, the hottest part of your apartment, and somehow that makes chicken parmesan? Well, HelloFresh makes conquering the kitchen a reality with deliciously simple recipes, demystifying the idea of cooking for yourself. See, each week, fresh, pre-measured ingredients and easy-to-follow six-step pictured recipe cards are delivered to your door in a special insulated box. So you spend less time meal planning and grocery shopping and more time doing what you love, like listening to this podcast. You just choose from three meal plans, classic, veggie, and family. And it really helps you get out of your comfort zone by discovering new delicious recipes. Like with HelloFresh, I made this uh, meatloaf with roasted veggies, a dish I have never made before. Hell, I've never eaten meatloaf before. I didn't get it. A loaf of meat? But then I made it, and it was super easy, and it was, like, really good. So the special deal HelloFresh is offering Good One listeners is get $80 off your first month by going to HelloFresh slash Good180 and entering the code Good180. So it's the word good, the word one, and then the numeral eight and the numeral zero. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash Good180 and enter Good180 and get $80 off your first month of HelloFresh. It's like receiving eight meals for free! I am Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox, and this is Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm going to get right into it because this is a long one, as it should be. That's because our guest is Gary Goldman, who, besides being someone I knew I wanted to have on when I started the show, is easily our most requested guest. And it makes sense. Gary's a true jokesman. His thoughtfulness and interest in the craft of jokes is arguably second to none. So much so, as we discussed in the episode, right now, every day, he's tweeting out tips on how to be a better comedian and how to write better jokes. And boy, did we pick a joke to talk about this episode. A lot of people talk about Gary's state abbreviation bit as his masterpiece, and maybe it shows just how tremendous Gary's joke writing talent is. But the joke we talk about, in my opinion, is his magnum opus. At least to the point, as you'll hear, this one joke captures so much of who Gary is as a person, as a comedian, and as an artist. As we talk about in the episode, He didn't expect that when he set out to tell a story about an interaction he had at Trader Joe's. No, it was like the joke, as a manifestation of Gary's ability, was like, give me more of you. The result is a 21-minute behemoth of dense joke writing, which spreads out over six tracks of his 2016 album, It's About Time. It is a testament to how much can go into one joke. It's really something to behold. So, strap in, and behold, Gary Goldman's Trader Joe's, followed by Gary and I getting into all of it. Now, now I'd like to tell you a story of a meltdown I had at Trader Joe's. Uh, yeah. First of all, let me preface this. Let me preface this by saying that I love Trader Joe's. I love them. They are so nice. They all do each other's jobs. There's no hierarchy. There's, ugh, I, it sounds communist. And maybe it is communist, but at least it's not Soviet wool coat uh, communism. I, w- I would characterize the communism at Trader Joe's as Narnian. 
Narnian during the reign of Aslan the Lion. Well, obviously, it's not going to be the White Witch. God forbid. During the reign of Aslan the Lion. Aslan the Lion, let me add, uh, the most obvious Christ figure in the history of literature. I called it in fifth grade, and I'm a Jew. But we got to the part in Lion Witch Wardrobe where Aslan dies, and the kids were weeping. They were so distraught, and I remember I was so cool, I said, hold your tears. <laughs> this goes where I think it's going. He'll be back on Sunday. <laughs> and show enough. <laughs> They're so nice at Trader Joe's. They always compliment me on one of the items I chose. It feels so good. Like, have you tried the olive oil popcorn? And I always make the same adorable quip. I always say, tried it. Huh. I can barely keep it in stock. <laughs> Let me tell you why that's funny. I'm not the purchasing agent for a grocery store. I'm just a guy. They compliment me on my item. They know what to do because I bring my own bag and they know what to do with it. A lot of grocery stores, they're dumbfounded by that. I've had them put my reusable bag into a plastic bag. <laughs> oh, did you think that your store sells PBS tote bags? Is that what you thought? No, 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 that's only available with a $100 contribution. <laughs> yeah, I contribute along with the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. <laughs> the Bill and to a lesser extent, Melinda Gates Foundation. <laughs> the Chubb Group. <laughs> what age do you get to when you don't laugh when you say chub group? And viewers like me. <laughs> I bring my own bag that tells you everything you need to know about me. Thoughtful, environmentally conscious, good lover. Patient, attentive lover, that's what that says. Bring my own bag. And a lot of times, now this is, you're gonna be like, this is insignificant, but I'm gonna show you something that they do at Trader Joe's that makes me so happy. <laughs> I pay with a credit card and I have to go to sign the receipt. And a lot of times I have my tote bag over my shoulder. So I can't get leverage with two, I don't have two hands available. I can't get leverage. And at Trader Joe's, they subtly, very subtly put their hand on the top of the receipt and give me that leverage so I can make that quality signature. <laughs> and it's the most intimate moment of my day. <laughs> when that person looks at me and without saying a word says, you're not alone. <laughs> and I can feel my brain awash in serotonin and dopamine. <laughs> I can. And then, then I read this study. I didn't, I didn't read a study. It was a summary of a study. All right, I read the summary of a study that psychiatrists did where these little interactions during the day, the hello to a neighbor, the hey, the nice weather we're having, or whatever, any of those little interactions during the day raise your level of serotonin and dopamine in your brain. Serotonin and dopamine, that's the same thing you get from your, from your Prozac, your Zyprexa, your Effexor, your Celexa, whatever you use to drive over the bridge without getting out of the car. <laughs> I won't judge you, I'm on everything but roller skates right now. 
so nice at Trader Joe's. They always ask me if I found everything I was looking for today. And I don't even think it's limited to their inventory. I honestly believe that if I told the cashier, well, today, today I couldn't find a friend. I feel like she would stop everything and say to her boss, Bev, Bev, I'm gonna take my 15 minute early if that's okay. This young man needs an ear and I have two of them. I don't write for women well, I apologize. <laughs> That's the knock on me. <laughs> but they, they say, did you find everything you were looking for at other grocery stores, but they don't mean it. They don't mean it, they're just saying it just in case you're the undercover shopper. They don't mean it. They just want you to get out of the store. Just say yes. You find everything you're looking, just say yes and get out of the store. What am I gonna hold up the line because you couldn't find your 100 calorie Oreo cookies? 100 calorie Oreo cookies are such a scam. They're such a scam. They're neither Oreos nor cookies. They're chocolate flavored oyster crackers. Which is fine if the soup of the day is marshmallow bisque. But it's lentil. It's always lentil. At least where I sup. <laughs> Trader Joe's, oh, they ask if you found everything you were looking for today. I've followed up with them. I said, well, last week I was here and I got some fair trade, conflict-free pumpkin seeds. <laughs> and this week all I could find is the conventional, the unfair trade blood pumpkin seeds. <laughs> Depicted in the ever so traumatizing documentary, Blood Pumpkin Seeds. I said, are you out of them? She said, did you check all 60 of our snack aisles? I did. I even checked all 35 of your trail mix varieties, nine of which contain M&Ms. How are you getting away with that? Please point me to this trail where I can pick candy covered chocolate with Times New Roman M's typed on the side. I said I couldn't find them. That's when she rang a bell and the stock boy, who's also the chief financial officer, he came running up the aisle with my pumpkin seeds and the bottle of spice cider that he said might be a fine compliment, and it was. It was. It was the Pinot Noir to my pumpkin seeds Chilean sea bass. I shit you not. Might be. Why, you humble son of a bitch. So now, of course, that begs the question, how did you have a meltdown in this Shangri-La? How did you lose your mind in this Xanadu? people who shop there. Godless savages. <laughs> they are pushy, they are aggressive, they're hostile, they cheat. You say, how do you cheat at a grocery store? Oh, it's easy. You put your cart in the checkout line with a few items in it, and then you abandon it and go get more things and bring it back and shuttle back and forth. And don't worry, the schmuck behind you will push the cart forward when the line moves. And I was that schmuck. I was that schmuck, that putz, that yutz, that schmendrick, that schlemiel, that schmageggy, that schlep, that schlub, that schmo, that schnook. Eskimos have a hundred different words for snow. Jews, we have a hundred different words for loser.
And then recently, I, my, my tune changed. I said, you know what? I'm sick of pushing their cart forward. They're taking advantage. They never come back and say thank you. They never apologize. So I have a new policy. When the line goes ahead, I go ahead of their cart. And strictly because I'm spiteful and vengeful, I steal an item from their cart. <laughs> And I am diabolical. I always pick an item that will cause domestic strife or to go missing. And then, I, and then I just fantasize about said strife. I've got this whole fantasy in my head about the husband coming home and he just wants to put on his salmon-colored slacks, pop his collar and watch The O'Reilly Factor. But he wants a snack. And his wife was at Trader Joe's today. So he goes into the kitchen and he starts looking through all the brown paper bags on the island in the kitchen. One, brown paper bags. They don't recycle these. <laughs> Two, they have an island in their kitchen. Do you know how wealthy you have to be to have an island in your kitchen in New York City? A landmass in your kitchen? Do you know how wealthy you have to be to have a kitchen in your kitchen in New York City? And they have an island? I hate them already. And he's going through and he's becoming increasingly angry. Oh, she got the cookie butter. Of course she got the cookie butter. Trader the, the Jose's salsa, of course. Where the fuck is my Kashi Go Lee Crunch, Karen? I've got the crunch. I have the crunch. And it's marinating in almond milk as he loses his mind. <laughs> the other thing I like to do, and this is strictly, uh, well, this is community service. I invite any elderly woman in the vicinity to cut ahead with me. You say, how do you get elderly women to join you in your pursuits? I appeal to their vanity. I say, come on, girls. When elderly women are referred to as girls for the first time since the Cuban Missile Crisis, they light up. One of the women was so overcome with lust, she, she was fanning herself with her hand, which any third grade teacher will tell you is futile. Fanning herself with her hand, she said, young man, young man, if you had any idea how old I am. And I said, Phyllis, Phyllis, I have some idea how old you are. The fact that the Department of Commerce discontinued the first name Phyllis in 1933. I can ballpark at you, Randy Minx. The only thing with the elderly, they're, you know, they're the greatest generation people, so they're rule followers. They, they didn't want to make any waves. They're like, what's going to happen when the woman comes back to the cart? Well, Rose, Blanche, Dorothy, there'll be a showdown, and I'll handle it. I know what we're dealing with here. I've profiled this criminal. Based on the time of day and the neighborhood, I know what she's going to look like. 3 p.m., Upper West Side, wealthy. Also, she's shopping healthy, which means she exercises, she works out. She's gonna have that body because she goes to Pilates Yoga Soul Cycle. She's gonna have that combination body where the head mm, doesn't really match. Because there's no yoga pose for the face. So you have these minotaurs walking around the city with the lower body of a yoga instructor and the head of a Komodo dragon. And that's what came back to the cart. That's what came back to the cart. 
armful of frozen foods. Now, why is that significant? Well, this particular TJ is where I trade. It means she went downstairs to frozen foods. It's a 10 minute round trip. The audacity, nay, the temerity. To go downstairs to frozen foods, comes back with an armful and said, and I quote, yeah, no. She said, yeah, but then she said, no. I hate that expression so much. It is the ultimate in passive aggressive. To get your hopes up with the yeah, only to dash them upon the rocks of no. Yeah, no. I was ahead of you. Ugh. I hate yeah, no. It's, it's, it's my third most hated expression. Number three is yeah, no. Number two, at the end of the day. Oh, I hate at the end of the day. They think they're so smart starting their sentences with at the end of the day and they really wind it up. At the end of the day, look. They say so much and say nothing. They just go on and on with these little, look, listen, not for nothing. I'm just thinking out loud here. Here's the thing. The thing is, when it comes right down to it, when all is said and done, when push comes to shove, at the end of the day, it is what it is. Just saying. At the end of the day, and just saying, oh, those people, oh, I, I, hate, I hate them. I hate them. It's wrong to hate somebody for their expressions, but I do it. At the end of the day, they think they're so, and then they drop some empty cliche on you. At the end of the day, it's all about family and community. When? When at the end of the day? What is it at breakfast? Hookers and cocaine? Is that what it's about? Just let me plan my day. And just saying. Just saying. They always were just saying something irritating, offensive, or ignorant. Nobody said anything brave or courageous and then backtracked it. Just saying. Give me liberty or give me death. I'm just saying. I know those are two stock alternatives, but I just want you to know I mean it. Hero, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hero, I'm just saying. If you have the time, I don't want to inconvenience you. No. It's always some Facebook status update. Offensive. I never had any trouble with bears in my backyard before we elected a black president. Just saying. I'm not saying there is a correlation. I'm not saying there ain't a correlation. It could be specious. But this, this woman said, yeah, no. I was ahead of you. And so I said, no, yeah. I flipped it. I said, no, yeah, you were ahead of me. Then you went shopping. You can't go downstairs to frozen foods, come back with an armful and take your spot in line. The best I can offer you at this point, ma'am, is back cuts. I feel that's incredibly generous considering the Golden Girls have minutes to live. And I wish I could say it ended there, but it didn't. She got violent. After I said that she couldn't go ahead of me, she just rammed ahead. She rammed me in the basket with her cart, 
sprained my wrist, crushed my lentil chips, rendering them useless for dipping, not topping. <laughs> and I, I just stood there. I don't know what I was looking for. A bouncer? I don't know. I don't know what I was looking for. It's Trader Joe's. And I'm like, will somebody, will somebody say something? And I was like, oh, now I gotta say something. I gotta take a stand. At Trader Joe's, I gotta take a stand. I don't wanna take a stand. The most stand I'll take is I'll insist on a booth at Cheesecake Factory. Right? It's more comfortable. <laughs> but I don't like to take a stand. But I said, no, there's no way I have to. I have to say something. This aggression will not stand. So I took a stand. I, I've, I've seen stands taken. You need a gesture and a slogan. And all I could come up with was, uh, I used the black power symbol, which is completely inappropriate. <laughs> For the 1968 Mexican Olympics, I raised my fist. But the slogan was even worse. I said, this isn't fair! <laughs> but like higher pitched and whinier than that, it came out so bad, my voice was shaking. This isn't fair! <laughs> and in my, oh, in my fantasy, it started a groundswell of support and the people rallied behind me and they said, you know, I'm glad you said something. Nothing. There was silence. There was no chanting of USA. There was silence. Except for one guy behind me who said, oh, here we go. <laughs> then I looked to the perimeter for support. And all there was was an eerie glow as the people raised their phones and switched from pick to vid. <laughs> oh, no. I have seriously miscalculated the political climate of this Trader Joe's. They are not ripe for revolution. And I would have backed down. I was just, just saying, you know, I was gonna back down. But then the woman who cut me, <laughs> she couldn't leave well enough alone. She woke this sleeping giant. I said, this isn't fair. She turned around and she said, you'll get over it. <laughs> you don't know me at all. You have just ensured I will never, I will never get over it. I am sensitive and I hold a grudge. I have axes I've been grinding since second grade. There is no way I will get over this. I will be bringing it on my, on my deathbed, I assure you, on my deathbed. My last words will be, this isn't fair. And people will analyze, it'll become my rosebud. People will analyze, what could he have meant by this isn't fair? Life is too short. Life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Oh no, no, a woman cut him in line 56 years ago at Trader Joe's. The freak never got over it, I swear to you. Even though she said that he would. So I knew I wouldn't get over it, so I, uh, so I, I uh, had a, uh, a counter attack. I, I picked up my basket, but I didn't, I didn't make the same mistake twice. I didn't want to get inside of me, so I picked up my basket. I jabbed fake left, she bit. So I crossed over to get the baseline on her. But she was spry. She spun and rammed me once again in the basket with her cart. But I was so drunk with righteous anger that I screamed, that's assault, that is assault, ring the bell, I've been struck. <laughs> I've been struck. That's when she realized she had been out crazied. Because <laughs> you don't think about it. I've never said I've been struck. 
Nobody has said, I've been struck since the 19th century. I've been struck when out with, good day, sir! I said good day, sir! Good day, sir, of course, the go fuck yourself of 1876. What a splendid time in American history. We just say a greeting in an angry tone and everybody knew you meant business. So she started her retreat. She said, fine, you know what, fine. Fine, go ahead of me, if it's that important to you. It is. If what's that important to me? Justice? Yeah, justice is that important to me. It's a cornerstone of my philosophy. But she says, uh, just know, just know you're allowed to leave your cart in New York City. That's how it works. Yeah. No. That's, that is not how it works at all. I know how it works. I've been operating grocery carts since I was 11 years old. My mom felt I was mature enough not to ruin old ladies' Achilles heels with the cart. I know how it works. Let me show you how it works. All right. Here's your cart. Here's your foot. Anything you can reach without lifting your foot off the ground, you can put into your cart. You cannot lift your leg, get on an escalator, go downstairs to frozen foods, come back with an armful of skinny cows and Amy's organics because you will have lifted your pivot foot. And that, my dear, is a travel. And I'm calling it. Had she just asked, I assure you, had she just asked, if she had just said, do you mind if I go downstairs for frozen foods? I forgot skinny cows. And I'm craving something sweet. I only have three points left today. I'd say, I know, skinny cows. Two points, ow. I love skinny cows. I can barely keep them in stock. I would say, go, go, get your skinny cows, Godspeed. Because that's the truth about Americans, and even New Yorkers. We love, love doing favors for strangers. Strangers, not our family, they can go fuck themselves. <laughs> when a stranger, I will bend over backwards to show them I am not the person my family said I am. We are here with the, the man behind all of that joke, Gary Goldman. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. I, I've been, well, I would have been furious if you didn't have me on. So. <laughs> Ever. Yeah. So I want to start uh, from the beginning, the very, very beginning of this joke, uh, which I imagine is one day you went to Trader Joe's. But yes. uh, before even we get to what happened, uh, I'm going to read one of your uh, tips Okay. Today, which is from February. It was number 40. <laughs> this weekend, do something new and or ridiculous. Example, take a date on a hot air balloon at Ryan Hamilton. Fight anarchy at Trader Joe's, the gull, meaning yourself. Yes. Uh, be a Jew at a meeting of young anti-Semites. And then you uh, at Alex Edelman, hashtag Goldman Tips, hashtag right now. So have you ever seen The Prestige? Yes. So I reference the Prestige too much, considering I don't oh, love it. Oh, it's a masterpiece. <laughs> yeah, but I, what I like about the Prestige is, for me, it is the example of 
when talking to comedians of living your life in service of the art. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. the question here yeah. is going to Trader Joe's, are you like, I'm living a life or am I constantly living for material? At that point, I don't, I don't think that I was living for material because most of my material had come from observations. Mm-hmm. So watching things happening and noticing trends and, and anecdotes, I think for the most part at that time, that was like my first long story yeah. joke. Yeah. And it was, it was like off to the races after <laughs> that because it was so fun to, to try that together. So you go to Trader Joe's. 72nd and Broadway. <laughs> after a therapy session, my therapist is at 72nd and Broadway oh, too. It. This, this guy that Many comedians see this man named Alan Lefkowitz. That's great. He started with Richard Lewis, and over the years, he's seen so many comedians. Uh, I don't want to mention any of their names out of res- respect, but <laughs> I, I have one friend who who goes there, and he, if I go in after him, or if he goes in after me, he always says, "Did you leave anything for me?" <laughs> so, so you're at the in the most boring way possible. What happens okay. with this woman? I was I was there and there were two or three elderly women ahead of me and then there was a a woman ahead of them who who left her her cart and was gone for a while and to the point where the line moved forward and we we went ahead of her and then she came back and and she insisted on getting ahead of us again and one of the elderly women and this is the 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 great line that I take for myself. And <laughs> one of the elderly women said to her, you went shopping. <laughs> and, and she, she resisted and she was, she was so hostile and they just gave in. And I was so incensed and had, had just been empowered by a good therapy session. Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, decided to, to yell, this isn't fair. <laughs> and then the woman turned back to me and she said, you'll get over it. And, and, and that was the, yeah. And, and then we kind of tussled a little bit and, mm. and I, where you try to get in front. Yeah. Of I tried to get in front of her <laughs> and she, she slammed her card into my basket and, and it got, uh, ugly. And then in, in reality, she said, fine, if it's that important to you, but it, it might not have been what really happened. I, I can't remember because I've told the story so many times in that way. That you could picture her saying that, but you yeah, have no idea if she said that. Somebody once said to me in a similar situation, You'll, um, if it's that important to you, yeah, go ahead if it's that important to you. This woman actually did say, you'll get over yeah, it. Yeah. But somebody somewhere in my life, either that woman or somebody else said, if it's that important to you. <laughs> and, and, and I said, it is, it is that important <laughs> to me. It happens. Are you immediately like, you know, I, I talked about how there's comedians have the sort of a spidey sense of like, oh, there's material. In yeah. Life. Did you feel like, oh, there's something? Yes, absolutely. And, and to the point where I went on stage that night at the, at the comedy cellar and told the story and the only thing I really had was you went shopping. Yeah. <laughs> which was the line that the elderly woman said. And it and it bombed. And the entire story, just no interest from the audience. 
but I knew something was there. So I, I sat at the, the comics table upstairs at the olive tree and I said to, I remember it was Keith Robinson. I told him the story and he laughed and I said, do you think that's, that's funny? Is that worth sticking with? And he, and he said, yes. And I never do that. I never workshop, a, yeah. a, 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 I never ask permission of other comedians, whether this is, this is funny. I, I, I just, I, it's, Usually you have to see it on stage and, and it's just, if I have done that, it's been a long time and I don't yeah. remember the last time I had done that. Now, I, one of the things I've done over the years is, is workshop with comedians say, this is, this is a joke I've been working on. Can we add anything? Can we change it? Mm -hmm. But I've never said, is this worth Even telling on stage? Is it because there's a different type of joke that you want yes, to see? Yes, exactly. That's a great point, Jesse. I, <laughs> I had not been a storyteller up to that point, a true storyteller. And then... It's it became not not all that true. <laughs> yeah, but over at the, some point you're going times. Through. Yeah, so, but it, it's emotionally true, which I think is important. So is the we'll get through sort of all of. But I, I was wondering, I guess at that point, are you like what Trader Joe's material is already out there? Like at what point are you making sure there's not things that are sort of adjacent to this? I know because I know that you do that. The thing was that normally people in or comedians rail against these things they hate this they hate that yeah. and i've found it's 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 easier to be different if you take the other side of that argument yeah. i don't know why they make it so easy for me but they do they just hate everything and yeah. are and are so cynical and so by by and i'm i'm not doing it to be to be the an iconoclast or anything. I love Trader Joe's, <laughs> yeah. and it's much easier for me to write something original from that from that vantage point and perspective than it is to to uh, attack something. It's it's it, it feels better too. I don't have to rile up any kind of anger or anything like that. I can. It doesn't require as much as much acting. As we mentioned, the joke was not written in order. No joke gets written like, okay, right. it's time yeah, to write yeah, a joke. Yeah. Let me start with the first word. And then yeah, 21 yeah, yeah. minutes later, right. you yeah. have no idea. Right, exactly. Um, and what's useful is by 2012, you have the story half of the joke because you do it on John Oliver. Yes. So, the, so you basically have a little bit of I like Trader Joe's as a setup to then yes. tell the story. And then by 2014 on Pete Holmes' show, you only do the part about how you like Trader Joe's. Right, and that's twelve minutes already of material, and then yeah. somewhere along the way, nine more minutes come together. Yeah, by the time you record an album, two thousand fifteen, um, to set the stage. Okay, so you start the story by telling the audience, "This is a story." Yes. <laughs> Other things that you do, they're hypothetically stories. You just start like when. Right. Why yeah. was this? Why a line like that? The hardest thing to do for me in, in stand-up is always to to start the show. I never know where to, to start. And I think a, a lot of comedians have that have that issue. And I and I don't like to do crowd work because I didn't like it when when comedians did crowd work when I was in the in the audience. Mm -hmm. So I just started doing that one night. And it's also it's obnoxious because I'm I'm announcing to the people that I'm just going to tell one thing and it's going to take up the entire time that yeah. I'm, I'm on stage so when i would have a 15 minute spot at the at the comedy cellar i would i would it's 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 bragging i would say <laughs> i'm just going to tell a story and then it's like and by the end of it people don't notice what happened but i'm very proud of myself <laughs> so you're like yeah. i promised you something yes. and that's gonna happen yes. um yes. so the next part 
you have the seeds of this, uh, pun intended, in the John Oliver <laughs> joke, which is in John Oliver, you say, uh, they're so nice. Everybody does everybody else's job from the bottom to the top. It's no doubt communist. The yes. end. Then by Pete Holmes, it's uh, it's an oasis of sweetness in a desert of cruel grocery stores. <laughs> they're so nice to each other. I don't uh, remember saying that. <laughs> it's communist, clearly, but it's not gray wool coat Soviet communism. I would categorize the communism as Trader Joe's as Narnian, which is pretty close to what you say in the special. The only difference is uh, you add, at least it's not Soviet wool coat communist. You add a little, at okay. least. But uh, <laughs> so how does that... So I think that sort of begs the question of how you're getting to, uh, you know... To, from communism to Narnian to let's talk about Narnia. Just sort of the thought process of getting to into Narnia. For years, I had had a theory on on the Chronicles of Narnia and a separate joke that the, a, a lot of the issues with with jokes is, and it's it's clear in the introduction to this. I'm just going to tell a story. It's how to get into it. Yeah. How do you talk about something else and then all of a sudden it it can it can really throw off the, the audience and distract them and, and confuse them. So I, I find it much easier to work these things into something that already works and, and tangentially. And I, I also have always loved Rube Goldberg machines mm-hmm. where, where there's, it's just about the art of it and the beauty of it. And, and it's, it's usually something that's really unnecessary <laughs> yeah. and, and could be done very easily without a machine. And cause it's like, you, you could fry an egg by just putting the egg yes. at it, but yes, like each exactly. stop has to yes. be worth it. Yes. And the whole back to the future, the opening of back to the future, you're, you're, you're into this movie right off the bat because of the way they mm-hmm. open up the can of, of dog food. So I, I think that, having these ideas and writing pages and pages of jokes about the lion, the witch and the wardrobe, even before the movie, I had no, I had nowhere to, no confidence to just bring it up out of, out of nowhere because yeah. it's jarring to an audience. <laughs> so when I, and, and this is probably subconscious working. I didn't go into it thinking what other types of communism are it's there. Safe, yeah. It just, it just, it just came to me. That that this was a that this was a benevolent form of communism, and the first thing that came to my mind was was Narnia. And guess what? I've been thinking about a <laughs> j- thinking about a joke about the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe for forever. And also, there's probably not any way that people will know what I'm talking about unless that movie had come out. Yeah. So I could I could have written that joke in the early 90s when I first started comedy and nobody would have remembered yeah. it if they ever saw the cartoon version or read the book. I mean it just wasn't in the it just wasn't in the in the, top the, of the mind. Con- yeah. Yeah, so that was it's it's all about timing with a lot of these. There's storytelling as a form and there's storytelling stand up which we've talked about in a certain way a couple times on the show. First, John Mulaney talking about microbriglia, and then Mike Rubriglia talking about microbriglia, which is every single detail that you might tell a story is an opportunity to do jokes on top. Yes. Is that is that essentially how you pr- you're like, okay, well, I have this seven-minute story I'm doing on John Oliver, but I'm not done with it. Okay, let me go through. I have this communism. Let's see if I can do just more on this. This is one detail. Let's explore that. Well, the, the way I write is to transcribe what I said on on stage last night at this yeah. point. It took me a long time. I always transcribe my jokes, but 
over the years, I've become better at adding things to the jokes while I'm on stage and, and in the moment. So when I'm transcribing the story, I think I love Trader Joe's. Okay, why? Yeah. And then I can I can expand on on that. And as I'm saying, here's why I love it. Everybody does each other's jobs. They're very nice to each other. It's a great communal atmosphere. It's it's and I, and I can just hear critics saying, "Yeah, it's communist." Yeah. And then I say, "Yes, it's communist, but it's benevolent communism." So so I write out out that and and just go on stage every every night and hope this new thing that I added from the last time mm -hmm. will 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 stick or at least feel right and 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 get some re response and the, the, the whole thing in being a comedian is building time is is hard <laughs> and, I, and i find this this is the most efficient way for me it's, it's it's not it's like a smaller version almost like of what you experienced when the first trader joe's story happened which is oh a spark of oh there's material in me just saying it's communist yeah and then you're thinking through and then you go do you write down a thing to say on stage or you're like oh let me when I, I write down a lot of things to say. Yeah, I write down a lot of things to say on stage. And then while I'm writing it down, so I say it's benevolent communism, I think, like Narnia. And then, oh, I've had a take on Narnia for a, for a long time yeah. about, about that this, this, this allegory of Aslan is such an obvious Christ figure. And then... One of the funniest things to me is is precocious kids who yeah. are clearly written by adults. <laughs> that's that's it's it's a, a gimmick I, I use frequently in, yeah. over the years, and most recently on on Conan, where I write things that I could not have come up with it at seven, <laughs> but sound very funny and coming out of an adult voice, and and that's what I what I did there. That yeah. I want to ask you about two changes from the Pete Holmes show to the thing, which is. Um, in on Pete Holmes, you go, uh, blah blah blah. I called in fifth grade and Jew, and yes. then you point to yourself. But uh, then in the special, you go, I called in fifth grade and I'm a Jew. Okay, and making it longer. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't intentional. I got it. Yeah. So is, is I guess there's sort of a general. Is there amount of word perfect you are to a thing like this? Like, are you recall how much of it are you verbatim trying to remember something that you've written down? Probably eighty percent. Yeah, but I I. There's Jerry Seinfeld who writes it down, performs it word for word, and does an imitation of himself every night. And then years ago, I read this interview with Gary Shandling, in which he says he he meddles with the timing and the words and the order and the speed and and everything. He's more of a an actor, I think, than than Jerry was when he was doing stand up. And and so I've combined those those yeah. two. So I would say it's eighty percent Seinfeld and twenty percent riffing and and. By the time I put it on a TV show, and definitely by the time I put it on an album or a special, I'm 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 locked in yeah. pretty much. And and any a lot of the riffing is just recalling things that I had written down. Yeah, because I've I've written it to death before I before I bring it on on stage usually. So then the end of this section, as you said, is the kid talking. Hold on, hold your tears. If this is going if this if this is going where I think it's going, we'll be back on Sunday yeah. and then show enough. Right. Is that yeah. incongruency that it sets up? Yeah. I, what I think is interesting about this first tangent is it, it sets up what I guess you would call like the, what UCB people call the game of the, what is the, oh, the metatextual comedic game of it? Right. So it's like there's jokes in between, but sort of the, there's two sort of uh, comedies. One is 
There's going to be incongruencies of the situation and how you're reacting to it. Right. And the other one is there's going to be these tangents. Yeah. And I told you there's a story, and immediately I'm not talking about that story. Right. Yeah. Is that something that at some point you're hoping for? Do you realize that is what the rhythm of it is? I had done this with other other things, probably first with the with the story about the grapefruit, and the origin of the grapefruit, which is similar in, in the closest I got to being kind of a storyteller, but the first kind of long form, really long form that I that I did. And so it wasn't intentional, but I, I do like those, those diversions. And, and I love when you digress, I love, I love digressions. As long as you come back to the, to the thing, I, I, I love that. And I loved at the time I was reading a lot of, a lot of David Foster Wallace and his footnotes were Mm -hmm. often as interesting as the, as the text. So yeah, I, I sort of got into, got into that at the time. So the all versions of the sort of joke evolve into the complement of your purchase. And then the first question is, how did you <laughs> land on the purchase of olive oil popcorn as what they would compliment you? Would you try out different things? No, that was the first that was the first Is it one. true? Is that like a thing that you It it never happened, but the olive oil popcorn seemed seemed to be the like a, they really pushed it, and it was a, it, it, had, it had a huge presentation in the in the different stores, yeah. Trader Joe's stores that I had gone to, and people are very moved by it. And it it seemed pretty specific, but still general. It's yeah. popcorn. Somebody could be excited over a popcorn. Um, yeah. So that sets up uh, one of the first just wonderful <laughs> jokes of it, which is tried it. I can hardly keep it in stock. <laughs> uh, and the big difference between that, the Pete Holmes version and the recorded version, is you add. Let me tell you why that's funny. Oh, jeez. Which is a specific move. I mean, I think what is what I like about all of that is you're like, oh, this guy in the story is also the guy we're seeing on stage. Right. It's the same. It's like. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. That's interesting. But so the let me tell you why it's funny is a very specific t- a breaking yeah a wall type thing that I, yeah. I don't think you've done to that. Before that, what? Why do you think you add that in? Why do you like it? Because I had worked on it, and it was so it was so hit or miss in the in the comedy clubs. And I'm so sensitive, so that if you don't laugh at this thing that I love, yeah, and I worked on, I'm hurt. And and so one night I explained to them why they why they should have laughed yeah and the interesting thing is that deconstructing it actually makes it less funny yeah but for some reason that that sort of bravado is funny yeah so it's it's, it's very unusual <laughs> the, the issue i have with that is it seems like a lot of comedians are doing that now yeah where they yeah so i i well there's a lot of this is a bad joke i'll explain why yeah and i i i think it's it was funny until it stopped being unusual yeah and and now it's it's sort of like i I remember watching johnny carson he would save the bad jokes and people said they would actually write bad jokes so that he could save them and it's like i wish i didn't know that (laughs) yeah yeah the in pete holmes you say you explain why is i don't have an inventory control issues i'm not a buyer but in the you (laughs) in the album i believe you say i'm not a purchasing agent yeah. yeah, I'm not a purchasing agent for a grocery store. Yeah, um, Bu- buyer is is too inside baseball. Yeah, purchasing agent is is more people would understand that better than and buyer. it's a harder yeah. sound. 
yeah. agent. Yeah, yeah, um, and, and purchasing. Yeah, yeah. Which then goes into a new part, which is the uh, PBS part, and what that you set it up by the most jokey joke of the joke, uh-huh. uh, which is a lot of grocery stores that he's, he's, he's talking about, you bring your own bag and they know what to do with it. A lot of grocery stores, they're dumbfounded by that. I've had them put my reusable bag into a plastic bag, yeah. which is a real, how dumbfounded are they? And then you, it's a real set up punchline joke. But it really happened. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 That's why you get, that's why you feel comfortable having such a. Yes. And then, so how does the PBS part of it then evolve? Where you're like, let me see all this PBS material that I've had lying around. Oh, sure. That, I, I just think about when I was in the audience, it was, it was such a magical moment when the comedian would say something that you, you thought only you had. Yeah. I mean, going back to the, the most basic one, which is the, the frequency of those, of those late night commercials where the woman said, I've fallen and I can't get up. I remember yeah. I didn't realize that every comedian had that joke in the eighties. <laughs> but when I first heard a comedian say that, I was like, Oh my gosh, <laughs> I thought I was the only person who saw that, yeah. that commercial. So Luckily, I've gotten in front of audiences who are irritated by the list of, of names at the beginning <laughs> of, the, of the, the PBS and telling you these billionaires who have contributed. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of which, the, the next part I think is maybe my favorite part because it's so different in a lot of ways. So it's the, um, you, the story of how they handle the receipts. Oh, um, yeah. That's and, my favorite part, too. And it's, a yeah. real, and it's different than almost any other joke at that I think of you did at the time, which is a really long buildup. Like you're just talking about it and you get really quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Can you walk through the, how that evolved? Cause it really is sort of different and it is new between after the, like that was obviously a newer part. How did that come, come about to do in that style? Well, I've never been really comfortable talking about my, my mental illness on, on stage. And then there was this, this opportunity where I could, where I was already doing pretty well with this joke. And then I could, I felt comfortable with the, the audience that I could, that I could make myself vulnerable by, by talking about this, this rather personal thing. And it happened to coincide a a lot of the things with, with jokes are, are timing. And when, when something's in your, in your head, you're working on a joke and then all of a sudden, or, or maybe it's that, that thing where you start noticing things when you're, when you're involved with them, Bader Meinhof or something like that. But yeah, so I just read in a New York times op-ed by my psychiatrist I didn't find him through the op-eds, but yeah. it turns out he's an op-ed guy. He's a, he's a professor at Cornell, and he also mm. sees patients. But he had talked about the, the tiny interactions during the day. There was a study. It raised your levels of dopamine and serotonin. And then I just – all these things, they tried out – I tried them out one night, and they worked, and they and they stuck. And people laughed when I mentioned the, the different – uh, antidepressants that were out there and, and so acknowledged that I was on them and, and it was very, it was very freeing instead of yeah. making me embarrassed. It was very freeing. And I, and I, I think one of the reasons why I like that part of the joke so much is, is that pretty much my entire hour and a half show right now is, is based on revealing a lot about my, my, my illness and depression and anxiety and my hospitalization. So, which is part of this whole new thing. It's called the great depression and we're shooting it for 
for HBO in, in June here in New York. But the point is that Trader Joe's employees hold the receipt at the top when you write yeah. it down. And so I'm so I'm going to Trader Joe's basically now at this point to do research mm-hmm. on little things and finding yeah, these yeah. things. And that one stands out because I'm writing a joke on it. And it wouldn't work if only Trader Joe's does it. I'm sure a lot of other people have yeah, yeah. had that happen to them. But it is so... It is, it is such a, a, a connection and it feels so good. And again, that's one of the great things of being in an audience is when the when the comedian, it seems like he's reading your mind. And then the part that makes me like laugh loudly is that uh-huh. whatever whatever you use to drive over the bridge without getting out of the car. Yeah. That phrasing of it. <laughs> do you, is, is that a thing you have to write down ahead of time? Do you riff something like that? No, I wrote that down. Yeah, I was trying to think of a fun way to say don't commit attempt suicide. suicide, and what was it Hudsucker Proxy where they where they talked about the the guy who jumps out of the window making making I just saw Hudsucker Proxy for the first time in a while, and they talk about the person making making impressionistic art or or or. What is that other other modern art? Maybe yeah. he said on the sidewalk and and yeah. So that that it's it's just finding a euphemism for for suicide, and, and you're just playing around until you find something. Yeah, yeah. So then you have the Pete Holmes in the Pete Holmes one. You end this version. You have the all the Oreo stuff, which I feel like as a person who has famously has all these cookie yes, jokes felt right, like something you right. had ready. There's some word changes. Um, they're uh, the, in in Pete Holmes. You say they're the, the secret. Oh, the secret is they're not Oreos. But in the special go, hundred calorie Oreo cookies are such a scam. They're neither Oreos nor cookies. Right. Which all is to build up to um, their chocolate covered, chocolate flavored oyster, oyster crackers. crackers. Yeah. Which has um, alliteration, assonance, and consonants in it. Uh huh. <laughs> is any of that on purpose? Do you no. think it just sounds good? And then it just like, sounds good. Yeah. Yeah, because I've listened to so much. I love listening to smart people talk, and I'll listen to like I listen to a few good men over and over again, falling asleep. And and Aaron Sorkin in, in particular, and and Quentin Tarantino. I love, I love listening to people talk like nobody else talks. And <laughs> yeah. and yeah, it's something that that probably took writing down initially for the first ten years of my yeah. comedy. And then now I can do on the on the fly, for the for the most part with it with a with just a. Luckily, I've my delivery has a lot of pauses and goes slowly, so I have a little bit of time to to formulate. Yeah. On on stage. When you have a thing, you make sure like you you hit it hard. Yeah. Chocolate flavored oyster crackers yeah. is a hard hitted hit. Sure. Joke. Sure. But but again, it's it's. There's a there's a, a survival of the fittest thing where if chocolate flavored oyster crackers didn't get a big laugh it wouldn't yeah. it wouldn't have made it past yeah. the first time I doesn't matter I tried how good the phrasing yeah, is if yeah, people yeah. don't hear it. right yeah I mean it also just sort of it's you can say anything right you can say they're crackers and people yes. are like oh yeah funny. they'd laugh yeah. a little bit yeah that would have been funny too yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah totally so uh, there's the blood, now we're at blood pumpkin seeds. So yes. here's, there's three different versions of you do blood pumpkin seeds. Uh, on John Oliver, you say, I got some salt-free, cage-free, conflict-free 
pumpkin seeds. I don't know how you feel about the whole controversy, but after seeing blood pumpkin seeds, <laughs> I like to get the conflict free. In Pete Holmes, you just say, uh, instead of the conventional unfair trade, pause, you then pause, blood pumpkin seeds. You then yeah. don't reference movie, but then right. back in the special, you not only reference movie, you underline the joke, which uh, the unfair trade blood pumpkin seeds depicted in the ever so traumatizing documentary Blood Pumpkin Seeds. Yes. Uh, which is a classy way of pointing out you said something funny. But the issue with that is, and I would never do it now, and I kind of cringe, is a lot of, I don't want to call them conservative, but hard-ass comedians mock the different, uh, the organic, and yeah. they mock, and I, I'm actually celebrating it. Yeah. And, and so... I don't. I wouldn't do that now because it sounds too much like like people complaining like, oh, everything's like gender non-binary. Shut up, non-GMO. It's like all these things are positive to me. Yeah, it's like oh, these are better pumpkin seeds. Yes, that's what the joke is saying. Yes, this is a store that has better pumpkin seeds than other store. And then in both the John Oliver and Pete version, they ring the bell, which people love the ring the bell joke. And then you're like, we're. here comes the chief. Uh, here's the stock boy. He's also the chief financial officer and the head of human resources. But you drop head of human resources for oh. the special. Oh, I shouldn't have. Yeah, yeah. It's probably better to add the head of human resources. But but the chief financial officer is definitely a, a choice. The CEO would have been too easy. Yeah, and it's a specific chief executive officer doesn't sound so good. But but somehow chief financial officer sounds sounds like the, the, one of the things that my friend and I were at a Starbucks in Los Angeles. I'll never forget this conversation with this this friend of mine named named Rick Harris, who who now he's an English teacher, but he was one of the best comedians I ever worked with. But he he was saying he that he thought one of the one of the components of, of laughter was hearing a word or yeah, hearing a word that you forgot you knew. Mm-hmm. That that makes you you laugh. And chief financial officer for some reason I think would ring a bell if people who took a marketing class or a, or a finance class in in college or or high school. I think it's also hearing words in different contexts that like you yeah. right so you said trail mix and then just right. using trail in a different context people are like it's it's the same thing. Yeah. I mean you have different versions of that throughout all of it like where you're using words in different ways or using the same word over and over again in different ways. So this joke ends with how it ended to Pete Holmes and obviously continue which is he came with a bottle of spice cider. You said it's a fine compliment, and it was, which is one of the biggest laughs. Right. Something about that where they're like, this place, if you get that, I imagine you're like, oh, the audience is on board. They yes. also, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, it was the Pinot Noir to the My Pumpkin Seed Chilean Sea Bass. So that is not a famous co- wine to food combination, at least to my. How okay. do you land on those words? Pinot Grigio is, is too common. Yeah. Right, Cabernet, all these other ones. Oh well, yeah, Cabernet too, and Stay, yeah, 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 yeah. We're too common, and for some reason, I thought Pinot Noir was a white wine, and you would drink <laughs> white wine. Noir. Yeah, it's so stupid, and and that you would drink white wine with a a fish, but Pinot Noir is a is a is a soft yeah sound, right? Pinot Noir pumpkin seeds is a hard mm-hmm. pumpkin. And Chilean sea bass is another hard one, so it 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 felt nice coming out of my mouth, and it sounded nice in my my ears. So that that's how it 
Yeah. How it became it's the right amount of syllables. Yeah, it's also that. the thing where yeah. you want a longer syllable thing than a short yeah. one. Right. It's like the yeah. rare example of like, let me figure out how to make this long without feeling yeah. forced. So we are now at the story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now the story starts. So I think this is a good time to talk about how to just generally how do you work on a piece like this that ends up being 20 whatever minutes long when most of it is you're doing 15-minute sets. Like, right, yes. How do you then get to the point where, like, oh, my goal is for this to be long. I have to imagine yeah. at some point you're like, oh, let's see. It. Yeah. How do you then get to that part where you're then – do you start plotting it out when you realize, oh, I'm going to have to make this one consistent thing? Maybe a, maybe a, a, a little bit, but I'm, a, I'm a, a runner and I have dogs, so I spend a lot of time – exercising with my with my thoughts so yeah. I'm, I'm going over these stories and and thinking where i can and also listening to them a lot when i'm writing so i'm thinking where i can add this and bring this in and i, I don't go so far as to to frequently chart them but occasionally i'll i'll write out a, a list and 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 put them in orders but I will say, and Mike Birbiglia was the one who who told me this years ago. He said, "You you build time by doing hours, not by doing fifteen minute yeah. sets." So I would do the hours on the road and add all these things in there, and then I would come back to the comedy cellar and have to fit this into fifteen minutes. But the thing that the comedy cellar is great—it's not not ideal for me at this point in my career. Where some guys I envy, like a, a Chris Rock or a Jerry Seinfeld, will go up with his notepad at yeah. the comedy cellar and it's like I'm not at that level where the, <laughs> where the people who book the comedy cellar and own the comedy cellar are gonna are gonna indulge me and bring my notebook yeah. on and the audience doesn't know who the hell I am yeah, yeah. half the time and so I have to I have to go up there with a killer 15 minutes but I can lose them in between some big laughs yeah. for a minute yeah at the most usually and within those minutes is where i would add these these little things, little things. yeah so you're building it both one minute at a time and yes. and, and and 21 20. minutes at a time yeah so then the next part you you do it in john oliver but you you have to set up what the thing is do you have to just sort of keep on going cuz you can't really get that many laughs you're just basically at that part is it a matter of just like how can i explain as quickly as possible what the central problem is like, are you just going over in different, trying to do it in different ways and be like, oh, I got it down to like three seconds. I got it down to five seconds. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That. And th and that's probably part of the, the, the motivation for the beginning of it yeah. is to say, I have this story, not, yeah. not to build up too many, too many things. And it, and it's, and it, it's not like everything else where it's really well thought out. It's just, I have this story and, yeah. and, so you're so, just, and I think I imagine you're like, I need a very big joke to come to justify this and that is the yeah. the jewish joke the yes eskimos have a hundred different words for snow jews we have a hundred different words for loser yeah but the thing is that is, is that like a that, i had that joke for years i had to imagine so. yes yes absolutely but again was, because i had become a person who had long jokes short jokes just didn't fit yeah. into my to my set unless i could i could apply them to these to these longer jokes yeah and so having that for for years may have worked in in conversation on a radio interview mm -hmm. or something like that but as far as being a part of my act it would it would stick out how important is being jewish and, and communicating to the audience that you're jewish to the person you're trying to portray in this story or for you in generally as your whatever we say persona is like do you f how when you think of yourself is that a part of it yeah 
yeah, for some reason, and and it was it was very, it was very um, liberating to me when I first started doing doing comedy in in Boston. Had I started in New York, being Jewish, I probably yeah. would have kept that to myself. But in Boston, I was one of only a, a few stand-ups at the time who were who were talking about being Jewish. This other man named Rich Seisler, who was was very inspirational and influence an influence of of mine. And so I could I could kind of stand out in Boston comedy with with Jewish jokes on a show where most of the guys were were not uh, non non-Jewish which is an obnoxious expression <laughs> but, which yeah so so it's it's important to the the length of the jokes that I'd be able to to also do some Jewish jokes on there <laughs> yeah. yeah so then you it goes into the part where you're imagining the home life of this woman you have not oh, met oh yes yes um which is you portray this husband with uh, salmon-colored slacks, pop his collar, and watch O'Reilly Factor. What do you want the audience to think of this man in this household at this point? Well, I often get resentful of, of very rich people. Depending on how I'm doing financially, I tend to get... To, and at that time, I was living with three Mormon men mm -hmm. in, in New York City. I had three roommates, and I was like 40 or 39. And so things were tough. And I lived on the Upper East Side, and I just saw the wealthiest of the wealthy mm -hmm. walking around. And, and the even though that this Trader Joe's was in the 72nd and Broadway, the, the people are, are just so infuriating mm -hmm. because of their, their wealth. And Trader Joe's is, is affordable. I don't understand why they're, they're, why so they're shopping. Yeah. There. Why are they shopping there? Themselves. Why themselves? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, and it also goes to my, my obsession with, with picturing people's home lives based on their behavior. And, and it's completely false and judgmental and mean. And yeah, it's, it's not a good quality, but it, it, it it's, except for joke writing. Yeah. Is it, was it hard to sort of get this part to work partly because it's darker than the rest of the, like this home life. Cause he yells at his wife. Oh yeah. 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 He's a real <laughs> bastard. Yeah. And then yeah. you, you're like, wait, you're like this guy who's like the joker who like caused chaos in this person. Yes. Was yes. it hard to get it to work because it is, or people are on your side. So they're like, yeah, screw those guys. The, the comedy seller audiences are generally very, uh, there's, there's some, you can get away with a lot of righteous anger downstairs, yeah. but that the, the, I don't know if we're, we haven't gotten to the appearance of the woman yet, but the appearance of the woman, I don't like to make fun of people who are unattractive. The people, the woman in this was not as attractive as the woman I'm depicting in the, mm -hmm. in the, in the, yes. in the story. I, I don't want to, I don't want to make fun of people's, um, bad you're, you're making fun yeah. of an attractive woman to, and I think that's, that's the, still, we're not meeting this woman. We have another <laughs> one more tangent, which is the, which is a whole album track worth, which is about meeting the ladies. The girls. Oh, yes. Oh, the elderly women. Yeah. My favorite, one of my favorite parts of this. Is, how did, is how the, did that evolve? Well, the hero of the story to me, of the actual story was the woman who told the woman who cut in front of us, you went shopping. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, she wasn't as, as angry and, and didn't really care as much as I did. But, but she did have that great line where she says to the woman, you went shopping and, and I'll, I'll never forget that. And, and, but the woman who came back to her cart was so dismissive of the elderly lady. And, and I just really, I, as I think back about it, part of it was for me standing up for these, for these elderly women. There's a part that I really think is really funny, but doesn't really work. But I want to know 
Which is so is uh, you you compliment the lady, and one of the women was so overcome with lust, she was fanning herself with her hand, which yes. any third grade teacher will tell you yes. is feel futile. It is clearly a joke. Yeah. To me, it's very funny. The audience yeah. didn't find it that funny. I can't right. imagine a lot of yeah. audiences find it funny. Yeah. What is that? Why is that? Why is that stay in there? When like you'd remove a the if it takes yeah. up too much time. Yeah, it's it's a little bit indulgent in that. Yeah, it doesn't always get a laugh. But I've noticed over the years, especially when I was a kid, there were moments on on comedy albums where only later did I notice that the audience didn't laugh, and yeah. it's my favorite line. And so I think I'm going to to keep that in because I really I love that image, and and I really think that that you may not like it but if you do like that you will really like it <laughs> yeah. yeah and and i and i and i i i feel that's part of building a a, a fan base yeah. is collecting the people who you see in the audience nobody's laughing but there is some people who are doubled over and and judd apatow i've heard said that that you need to get about 18 percent of an audience to to really love something and then you've got a you've got a nice career yeah there first you introduce phyllis but then you do um a real a thing that's uh, I think a really classic you move, but I think it's really impressive. Which is, uh, you talk to the other ladies, and there you go. Well, Rose, Blanche, Arthur, oh, geez, yeah. You know, you're trusting the audience, trusting some of the audience to know what you're doing without yeah. saying this is what you're doing, which yeah. you're setting up a thing later. But right. is that why? Why is it important to assume your audience to not have to spell things out to your audience? What do they? What do you like giving them those moments? I think I think audiences love jokes where they have to fill in part of it and, yeah. and that that's I think it's called negative space and the Simpsons use it so beautifully and and one of my favorite no my favorite joke of all time or the thing if I had to vote what's the best joke of all time is is this line other than that Mrs. Lincoln how was the play <laughs> which which makes me laugh at, or made me laugh when I first heard it and I analyze it and think about it so much it's such a beautiful a beautiful joke that if I could only save one joke it would be that one so that's that's I don't know if it's currying favor with the audience but the people like that I yeah. love that type of joke and 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 I'm I'm an audience member at times and and that really makes me happy so yeah so, so here we are we've met your we finally now we're finally meeting the woman one change from the uh from the John, John Oliver version to this is you you say I've profiled this criminal. Yes. So this is the first of a few examples of the you you increase the stakes with these little things that are not for jokes, but you're you're like oh this is a criminal. You'll <laughs> later go something like um, counterattack. You know like it's you're using more yeah. violent language. Is that right. are you delivered to that? Are you like or is that just something of like oh I need to make this seem like this story I'm telling is a very big deal. Yeah, it was deliberate. Yeah, yeah, to use that type of to use that type of of language to take it very seriously is is part of the the funniness, how outraged and how out of proportion my yeah. reaction is yeah. to it. Yeah. So you then ask the rhetorical question: Now, why is that significant? Which is a a little trick to like make a thing seem more conversational. And why, as the you've talked about this a bunch, you'd be like, you can tell the difference of what generation comedian is based on how conversational it yes. is. Yes. How conversational do you want to be to seem? In a thing like that, when you're trying to be like, oh, you're asking questions, like we're just talking, you're just not answering. Yeah, I, I mean, I I make it as conversational as possible, but I'm as unconversational as the audience will let me. Yes, 
so that they don't see through it as this is scripted and 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 he's he's a phony. Yeah, I, I so, think he once said yeah. he wanted to prove to the audience that they can't be doing what you're doing while still because like these are jokes. You're clearly yeah, are right. too. These phrasings are too specific. Yeah, but I one you'd be out of step if you're doing like a thing that's just all like. That if everyone's doing conversational stuff, but you yeah. want to—that's the balance you're trying to strike. Right. Yeah. And and it's it's just a matter of of acting and maybe maybe genre acting where you're. It seems like Allison Janney really talks like that on on West Wing. <laughs> yeah. Like you're never like this is how nobody talks. It's like no, this is how yeah how CJ talks and and only w- with a little bit of space you're you're saying oh yeah nobody actually yeah, talks like that because it but but i don't i'm not crazy about the um hesitation talk that some writers write into their yeah. into their things where that's, they want it to be still. yeah where they want it to sound yeah so i i, I prefer somebody to yeah, have I mean, the absolute worst yeah. is when people try to write so natural you're like they sound yeah. worse than no right. one actually talks that on yes. clearly yes um you then have a the next paragraph or the next part of the joke has the probably the, if the most parody of a Gary Goldman part, which is the audacity, nay, the temerity. <laughs> yes. Audacity is usually followed up in rhetoric by people trying to sound smart, but mm-hmm. it comes off bombastic when they say nay, temerity. Audacity, nay, temerity is something that I bet you could find in a hundred publications. Yeah, and and I I thought it was funny to use it in something where the stakes are so low. It's usually something from a UN speech, yeah. not a not a this stupid thing. Yeah, it's the audacity of hope, not yeah. the <laughs> the audacity yeah. of um yeah. trying to yeah. cut in line. So yeah, no, she says that right. Yeah, and right. and then. Uh, you get your hopes up with the yeah, only to be dashed them upon the rocks of the no, which is again the the contrast. But I want to ask you, you know, you have these turns of phrases that are they aren't necessarily cliches, but they are existing phrases. Like, oh, yeah. do you, you know, they can be like yeah, only to be. There's lots of ways you put it. Yeah. What do you like about having the thing that is like it rings through ear of a, a saying in that way? Yeah. I- I think looking back on it now, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have included dashed upon the rocks of of no because the thing that infuriates me about that expression is its is its frequency and how how often people use it. And I remember I wrote this this short film for an acting class in around two thousand two, and there was one character this this woman who. Every time she started a sentence, she would start with "Yeah, no," and the actress unfortunately couldn't get the get it down. Even yeah. though in real life it was based on her, she would talk like that, but she couldn't memorize it that way. And she would just say "You know," and and I'm like, no, you have to say "Yeah, no," and she couldn't get it down. So it was an infuriating verbal mm-hmm. tick that a lot of people had at the at the time and again it's something that i couldn't do outside of a joke as you ever notice people who say yeah no so when i put it into this woman's it worked with that with that yeah. perspective but again it was something i had had for for years something yeah. that i'd written into this this awful short film in 2000 2002 and i finally got to to use it and and sort of deconstruct that that expression because it in, infuriates me it's just i hate i hate lazy writing and and i hate lazy talking and i think part of it is i grew up around people who spoke in cliches yeah it's so yeah. interesting cuz you have turns of phrases that f- feel 
different and used in different contexts. And then you have a whole rant about cliches that you hate. Yes. Oh, and, yeah. and there's a clear distinction, but it is, it is a distinction that a person who... It's, it, it distinguishes what you like to do. You can say dash upon the rocks. Yeah. Because that's like, it's it sounds like something, but not something specific. But you do not like, and here's a list of every cliche that Right, I'm, yeah. Yeah, I'm okay with dash upon the rocks because I don't hear that once a day. Yeah. I hear somebody say at the end of the day, 10 times a day between sports radio and MSNBC and, and everything else. Even on NPR's programming people will start their sentences with at the end of the day and i i, I want to stop them and then for just saying you you have those two quotes uh of no one says it with something smart do you remember <laughs> picking those was one the sort of contrast of here's a boston accent of someone saying just saying smart <laughs> it's mayor quimby from the simpsons yeah, yeah yeah and yeah but but the, the well the kennedy one and yeah the, i love doing the boston accent and and it was it's it's and where I come from, it's it's shorthand for for being really, really ignorant. The way yeah. some people use the Southern accent, but but yeah. that's that's become too cliche. Even the Boston accent is probably cliche. At but this you also point. like yeah. it's a cliche at this point for anyone who's not from Boston. I think it's right. Yeah. Um, the next part is where you go. You were ahead of me, and then you went shopping, which we explained yes. was yes. It's yes. not yours, but you're like, that's good, and I'm going to keep it. So right. great. And yeah. it gets a laugh, but I imagine if it doesn't laugh, if get a laugh, you're like, oh, no, these people do not care. Right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You're like, I have yeah. to get, I have yeah. to finish this story real But quick. the interesting thing is that you went shopping is is something that, that is the, the least reliable part of that joke. Oh, interesting. It's, it's hit or miss, whether they laugh at... And I know if they laugh at you went shopping, which to me is one of the best parts of the of the joke, because it made me laugh when it happened. I was like, this is incredible. It is this... This is gold. What it is, is it is a story joke. It's a joke yeah. with the story, right? So it's yeah. like, if the story's working, then that joke is the funniest part because they're yeah. following you. Right. Where everything else is a joke that... Yes. You can, you can only be paying attention for 10 seconds and get some of these jokes. Where right. that one, yeah. you had to like... yeah care and be on your side yeah and you're like oh if they don't laugh you're like i guess uh they're yes. not on their side so then um it goes on you said considering the golden girls only have one minute to live which is a nice callback what is your feeling this is 2015 callbacks yeah. this was a time where callbacks were i think at a all-time low yeah where people were using it but yeah. you had a few and this joke alone you have three right yeah yeah i don't i don't care for callbacks and and there, there was a time where i would point out how easy it was to get yeah. a laugh off a callback during the set and then i thought that was too common for for guys to to do stuff or women to do stuff like that so i would would take that out now and i don't I, yeah i don't care for for i used to be blown away by callbacks until i realized how how easy, easy they are yeah but you use them here because it's in this world it's okay. It's you need. You I use need. them out of laziness, probably. Yeah. I wish I had come up with something better. Well, I but think it was also the best I could do at the time. I think also for this one, it just and so I've earned much. some goodwill. Yes. Yeah. And it's so much that you're like anything I can do to keep people paying attention to. Yeah. What is there's you still have not had a confrontation with this woman yet. You're right. Like, yeah. So I think it's I imagine it's just that. Or it's like, I mean, what's been going on for 25 years in my in my career is doing jokes well enough that the comedians that I respect don't think I'm a hack yeah. and, and bad at, at comedy. I still, I write for an audience, but I'm also writing so that other comedians don't think I'm, I'm shameful. Um, so then you, you finally have the conversation where 
She hits you two once. You're looking around if there's a balancer. She <laughs> renders your lentil chips useless. They're for dipping, <sighs> not for topping. Yes. How did how did the as you were like, okay, well, this conversation was very small. How do I make it into a joke? How did you sort of when you conceived it? How were you thinking of like, let me make this funnier than just sort of like a awkward, intense moment in a real life? Well, the story involves her slamming into my basket and and I was I was hurt a little bit but it was it was in the context rather violent and yeah. and, and really an incident yeah yeah and and I was outraged and one of the great things with with comedy is, is it, it's sort of its re- redemptive value which mm-hmm. is like all right this horrible to me at the time because I was shaking this horrible thing happened to me I can redeem this by making it into a joke and yeah. then it was worth the the quote unquote suffering. So the next line is oh no I've seriously miscalculated the political climate of this Trader Joe. So uh, they're not right for revolution. <laughs> so this is the part where I want to talk about how political this joke is yeah. because it is an incredibly political joke. It's maybe at this time your most political joke. So you, yeah. you set up yourself this sort of PBS watching yes. Harry <laughs> Jew in this safe space, and then you, like, and then you're talking about communism, and then that's what's yeah. good about. It. And then you're facing off this wealthy couple yes. who thinks that rules don't apply to them. Yes. By this point, Bernie, Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders is running for president. <laughs> yes, you talk about you don't you have that black president joke. Where were you at this time? Were you like? Were you thinking, oh, let me think about how can I make this a political statement about sort of these inequalities that you're noticing? Absolutely not. I just, I just know that I was broke at the time <laughs> and walking around with all kinds of resentment in the richest uh, city in the richest country. Yeah. I mean, this or one re- of the richest countries. What, what's interesting is it like this is a reflection of a time opposed to like, oh, I'm commenting on this time, but you're like, instead, you're living a life and you're reflecting a zeitgeist opposed to, uh, I'm going to try to capture said zeitgeist. Yeah, I was I was broke at a time when a lot of people were, were broke. I just, I just, oh, I had bought a house at the wrong time and had, was underwater on it and had to, have three roommates and it was and I was shopping at Trader Joe's because it was affordable and and healthy and it was just yeah so I I was walking around with I've heard Seinfeld talk about being irritable as a comedian and I was yeah. very very irritable at the at yeah. the time and 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 the the issue is I can't be so poor that it's causing me mood difficulties. Sure. So it's usually when I when I make a comeback financially and start earning because I wasn't working the road that much, but enough where I could work these jokes out. And every every spot at the cellar mattered. Yeah. In that I needed to do my best on them, so I needed to be prepared. So they keep on booking you. So they keep on booking me because I also needed the the money. Yeah. So. Getting on on stage frequently was was both helpful for my career, but also helpful for my for my for my lifestyle. But now, as you as you look back on it, do you now see like, oh, I guess there is a certain sort of like, be it political or a understanding of culture that I guess is now politicized, but sort of like you're contrasting types of people. I think the thing that I shoot for in in comedy, and I've heard Billy Crystal talk about it in, in kind of a an old fashioned way, where the where where his managers said you need to leave the audience with a tip 
kid, yeah. you know, and and uh, a part of you, and and yeah. so I, I think what I wanted to get across in in all of my jokes at every point in my career where I've actually had the skills to to write decent original jokes is that I'm not going to tell you very much about me but you'll know what kind of person I am based yeah. on this this joke like like hopefully after listening to an hour of me you won't think I'm a I'm a bro or a or a bully I mean this joke is an incredibly personal joke without being what we think of as personal right. comedy right yeah but it it was probably it's not like I always think of of Seinfeld as being very vulnerable even though people would say well you don't really know anything about Seinfeld but you know that in the 80s when nobody was talking like that this was before Seinfeld yeah. when everybody started talking like that he felt these things and said them on stage to New Yorkers. Well, I think I, I, I think I always, it was very vulnerable. I also think people are like, you don't know who Jerry Seinfeld is. Like, yeah, he's a guy whose brain is messed up and he keeps on doing this. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. I, and yeah. I, I think the idea, I think there's a definition of personal that was especially in Vanguard around this time, which is like, oh, I must reveal what is seen as personal. Yes. And I just, I've written about it because now, in retrospect, people that were held up as being most personal famously were not telling us things. Yeah. But what is actually personal is saying, this, I mean, this joke is long and it has, but it has a lot of little details about you, but also tells you how your brain works. You see, you connect dots. Right. And that is the best art can do is you sort of like get to like ride along a person's brain as they go through a thing. Kurt Vonnegut talks about reading is meditating in, in other people's minds. And, oh, I and, thought I made up that quote. Uh, no, you didn't make it up. <laughs> no, no, uh, no, you didn't say what it's he just, said. Yes, yes, yes. It's just sort She's of a, what, what you, well, what you said was, was very valid too. And, and, and well said, but that, yeah, that's who I think of when I, when I think of that, that idea. So yeah. uh, it goes into then you'll get over it, which is this amazing moment, at least that I have when you listen to this joke, which is like, he's telling this joke. Like there's, there's a, <laughs> <laughs> right. I hadn't thought about that. Like to me, that is the, the entire thing is that, right. It's like, this wow, is, you'll get over it. This is 17 minutes. in. <laughs> oh my gosh. But again, you, you I wasn't I, thinking about that at the time. It's the, it's the great, it's the great thing about, about reviewing is that you can add insight well, that's it, yeah. that may not have been Because I, to been me, there. it is like that. I mean, I, I think the, the more general question is why is this joke so long? I mean, part of it is what kind of jokes I, I love. Yeah. When I would watch comedians and listen to comedians as a kid, there there was part of my brain was just saying, oh, keep going, keep going, don't stop, and get to the thing that I think that is only in, in my life, which ultimately became a, a, a joke that I we had talked about talking about today, but it, I already went into it, but the abbreviations yeah. joke, which was as a kid hoping that someday a comedian would say most of the states start with the same first two <laughs> letters. So, yeah, that that's why the, all these things have to be long because I am obsessive and think yeah. about these, these well, that's, things and that's so what frequently. It, and as we said, it's a person because you yeah. get a sense that this person is that, this person who was you. I th what is interesting is that you have this desire to have these long things that are like the maximum how you can talk about it and then there's a part in the next part of the joke where you go, I've had axes I've been grinding since second grade <laughs> instead of since the second grade, 
which is how people would say it. And right. I, I don't know if you intentionally removed the the, which I think totally, you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's at the same time you're like, we can't have that the there, right? You're like, this joke is 21 minutes long. Yeah. What is that contrast that you like to say the? Second grade is something that an adult would say, but saying second grade is something that you would say when you were mm -hmm. in fifth grade. So it's it's funnier. It's, it's funny. It's also it's, the reverse. It's a reverse yeah. of the kid who yeah. sounds smart. Yeah. It's the adult who sounds like a oh, so like funny. a like a kid. And at some point, it gets too long. Yeah. So I used to add this part where I told a story from from it actually happened in first grade. I said it happened in second grade, where the where the teacher wanted to keep me after school, and she had the class vote on whether I should stay after school. And I lost and I tell the, the story and someday I will write it well enough that it'll be good enough to, and, to but that was in tell on stage joke. but that was in that joke so it, it was and it was another three or four minutes and it's just like alright now it's becoming gr gratuitous that you're just you're just and throwing that's, these but things that's, in there but that's you're sensing that yeah. it feels yeah. gratuitous to you and it, feel, it feels too long the life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signify nothing illusion which truly gets no recognition nothing <laughs> nothing yeah but you thought of it and you're like I I deserve to have this in my joke. Yeah, but also it was a, an homage to the to the proficiency of a high school teacher I had yeah. who made us memorize certain certain things like like whoso be a man must be a nonconformist, which is problematic now. But at the time, <laughs> I, I think was I think it's Emerson, but was was really meaningful to me. And also, again, if you want to talk about personal, yeah, that's it's always my fear that life is a t I, I fear that so yeah. yeah. Um, and as this joke feels like, especially at the time, surprisingly enough, it gave you room to put things into it. It was like sort of oh, like yeah. you did not – it was like a reflecting mirror or whatever. Yeah, where you're like, right. Oh, yeah. I guess – I didn't know this joke was going to be about mental illness, but that's now part of it. Yeah. And these quotes that I it's, – it's an amazing thing of – I love collages too. Yeah. That's another thing I love. And this is kind of a joke collage, right? Yeah. Oh no, a woman caught him in line 56 years ago at a Trader Joe's. The freak never got over it, I swear to you, even though she said he would. <laughs> uh, let's talk about first the beginning part, which is you called yourself a freak. When I interviewed Mike Birbiglia, we talked about sort of his signature thing, which he says, I know I'm in the future also, which is essentially being like, I know I'm wrong. And he says it right to the audience and they laugh and they're like, oh, yeah. we get it. You yeah. don't do that, but there are these little cheats where you're like, yeah, this guy's a freak, and yeah. that guy is yeah. Me, is yeah that line of it, right? Mike Birbiglia, he is he he is his type of storyteller. He tells the audience he knows that's his thing. Yeah. Why not cheat more to the audience? Why cheat a little bit to the audience? Right? You still want the audience to know that you're aware that this is weird, but yeah. not so much um, as to say it explicitly. Part of that probably comes from the fact that I feel as a as a comedian and. And not a not a influential one at, at all, but there were comedians when I saw who I saw in high school, and they were not famous, but th but their mindset was an influence on me. I yeah. was seventeen years old, and and them reacting to certain things gave me license. And so one one thing that that I I got from a very bad relationship was this woman was very smart and insightful, and she said, when you say. I had this joke, which for the joke, I would say, I don't, I don't keep up with, with the news. And she said, when you say that, you're letting the audience off the hook. And it's a lie. You do. <laughs> you read the New York Times every morning. You watch um, the news at the McNeil Lair Report, I think, at the time, or, or the, the PBS yeah. NewsHour, whatever it was, uh, every night. You're, you're lying and you're letting the audience off the hook. Don't do that. 
And so I don't want the audience to think that this is proper behavior. Yeah. Other, because we're, then you're Larry David. Yeah. And, and sometimes I think, well, would Larry David do this? And then I think, well, then I shouldn't because yeah. it's really bad behavior. Especially and as a stand-up, right? It's not yeah. a show where you can be like. Right, yeah. So then we go into Good Day, Sir, that <laughs> tangent, which yes. is the last tangent of the joke. Right. Why do you feel like that one made the cut? Because... Good day, sir. Was it was something that I had tried to write a joke about for yeah. a, for a very long time, and finally, finally, I had a place for it because it doesn't stand alone. So you reverse engineered yes. getting to say yes. It is the, um, for lack of a better term, one of the quirkier of the tangents. I feel yeah. like I heard you in an interview talk about how you wish you could be sillier or quirkier than hypothetically your, your audience or the audience you play to lets you to be. I mean, especially at this time in New York at the comedy cellar in a comedy cellar like places and as you're trying to prove that you can crush as the comedy cellar sometimes right, demands sure. of you. Yeah. Would you try it in different rooms that are more allowing of quirkier, sillier material? Do you wish you spent more times in the sort of lack of a better term uh, alt rooms or in the Brooklyn room? Sure. I I do enjoy those, but I I also feel an obligation to to be more more mainstream and, yeah. and and not be be too they always refer to it as the playing to the back of the room yeah so it's a balance and i listen for those people who the six people who are laughing so hard yeah and and i'm really connecting with them and it's worth it to keep something in like that for the, for them because i am i am that person i'm i'm the person who who loves the those those tiny things because you you delude yourself into thinking well that was just for me nobody yeah. else would get that so the the I, I i had the big it's an applause break it's the biggest laugh of the joke which is she goes this is that's this is how it works and you go yeah no oh yeah 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 which yeah. like it feels like the joke could end, sure. even though there's more to say. Yeah. And that, it would be weird because of the middle of the paragraph, but right. had you considered ending it there? I'm sure some nights I did have to end it there because the the, the <laughs> weird thing about, about stand-up is that sometimes you run through an hour's worth of material in 45 minutes, yeah. and sometimes the hour takes 90 minutes. So uh, uh, on some nights I probably had to had to to cut it there because you always want to go off with a big a big yeah. laugh even though i don't think anybody cares but <laughs> but yourself and the other comedians but yeah so that so that was that was really nice and the sort of the moral of like because the truth about americans and even new yorkers we love doing favors for strangers which is again a pretty political message. <laughs> right right um yeah. but how did yeah. that well, how did you end up like oh well, that's the moral did you then have the then the next line the strangers the misdirect to be Strangers, not yes. Oh well, at the time I was in a big argument with my with my brothers, mm -hmm. and which an overreaction by by me, and we had a rift, and so I was I was every time I told that it was actually pretty good acting because every time I told that that joke, I was thinking, oh, I hope my brothers see this. <laughs> the uh, yeah. when a stranger. Well, I, I will bend over backwards to show you that I am not the person my family said I am. That is yeah. not a that is a story ending. That is a moth slam. Oh, and okay. That's a story. Oh, that's interesting. The other ending, which is like a big joke ending, right? That is yeah. Not that you're not ending really on a laugh, right? Because it's yeah. just nice or smart yeah. or interesting. Yeah. Was it you promised a story? You feel like it ended with a story, or you just sort of thought of that and you're like, how, how that specific version of the ending. 
where it doesn't have like another. And yeah, that's why that woman right is right whatever. Well, I don't. I don't. I'm kind of tired of the jokes where the where the comedian is the hero and he and yeah. the people woo, and I was feeling terrible about my my situation with my with my with my family mm-hmm. and that they didn't they didn't appreciate me and so I wanted them to hear that me me say that that I uh, that I'm not I'm not selfish and I'm 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 not a a, a e- egocentric person and I probably am and maybe this joke just says that I was thinking about that sentence when I'm when a stranger I will bend over backwards to show them I'm not the person my family said I am that is like a decent metaphor for what stand up comedy is you are talking to strangers and you are in this joke spending 21 minutes like going out of your way to be like I'm not this other type of person. Yeah. The state of the state abbreviations joke, which we almost talked about, which gets talked about a lot, which it it felt like the the height of your ability as a comedian, yeah. like as in terms of just ability. But this to me felt like the most you joke. Oh yeah, it's the it's probably my best joke, and it's it's not it's not as popular as some of the other ones. Yeah. How, how maybe you, maybe because of where I did it, or the timing, or the fact that Patton Oswalt didn't go on Facebook and rave about it. When did you realize the joke is saying like this is who I am? Before today, <laughs> I think as I was writing it, I was saying I can get I can get everything about me into this yeah. into this joke. But I, I I also think that I try to do that with, or I've tried to do that with with most of my jokes since I yeah since I first started. But it, it's like a it's a cheat because I don't. Up until recently, I didn't want to tell you anything about me. Yeah. And I wanted to keep it to myself. But I want you to know these things. But yeah. I'm going to... Like, the the last Colbert show I did, I talked about all these lazy things in my life. But what I really was saying, but I didn't have the confidence, was I'm so sick. I'm yeah. really depressed. I'm very sad. And I can't function. It was interesting because I, I heard someone refer to that set as like, oh, when he went on Colbert and talked about depression. And I was like, right. And then I, yes. I was like, no, without didn't. mentioning <laughs> yeah. depression. That's, and yeah. it's clear for people who know and not yeah. clear for people who are just right. like, which I think is, it ends up being savvier because people get it who get it. And then right. everyone else is like, oh, this is just a funny joke. Yeah. I get it too. I'm yeah. also lazy. Yeah. Yeah. That's what my, my, my friend said that, that, um, you need to yeah. be explicit about being depressed in this special. Yeah. You can't just say that you were, because some people will interpret it as, oh, he's, yeah. he's lazy. Yeah. I mean, also yeah. especially for people who are depressed, they will appreciate it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes, like, exactly. And that is that I had that, no idea how many of us there are. Yeah. As a person who writes jokes, it is interesting that like the jokes told you this is what they wanted from you. It's like, you're like, oh, you did not go into this joke being like, oh, this is where I'm going to talk about mental illness for the first time. No. Um, so tip 39, I want to talk about. <laughs> you go, this weekend, spend two hours in an art museum. Notice how meticulous and precise the artists are with their painting sculptures. Consider the countless choices they made. Seeing masterpieces up close makes writing a joke seem very far less daunting. Yeah. So often on this show, I often try to find ways to ask people the very simple question of, do they think of themselves as an artist or a crafts person? Yeah. Um, which started from the first time I interviewed Jerry Seinfeld, which was the inspiration to do this. I asked him that because he has a very hard time accepting to call himself an artist. Right. And I think a lot of people in different ways do. And, and listening to interviews, I've heard you sort of brusque when people describe you as a craftsman. Right. Because 
you, when you hear people say craftsman, you hear them say not artist or or one one you personally or one general. I don't want to demand you think this way, no, I but know. you obviously care about the craft in the art that you consume, as yeah. that tweet suggests. Yeah. How are you now? What is your sort of history with the internal debate of clearly being a person who cares, whose craft is the way that they sort of get to their whatever the place that art is? Yeah, I I think, and I've been trying to formulate this as a as a tip, and I don't I don't spend I try not to spend too much time writing the tips because it's time spent away from writing jokes. <laughs> yeah. So, but I've I've been coming back to this one. The idea of when I when I started to think of myself as an artist, that that was a, that was a switch, and I can I can remember the 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 inspiration I got at and then, and I'm not sure where I saw this painting by Edwin Hopper. It could have been the Guggenheim, it could have been the the MoMA, but I saw it and there was a splotch of white paint on a a light pole, mm. a, a globe street light. And I said, oh, he, he thought about that splotch of white paint a lot. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of other areas on this painting that he, that he made choices on. And it was while I was writing this, this joke. And I, I thought, I, I'm, I'm, I'm making something and there's, it's not the same. It's more of a collage than it is a, a painting. But I, I need to be meticulous in, in choosing the right the right things to overlap and and to to do with this with this joke because there's a there's a theme and and the the thing that that I w- I hope people will, will understand with the with the tips is that these these things you have to do intentionally for years will eventually become things yeah. that you do offhanded and, yeah. and on stage and without really, really thinking about it. So, so I don't consciously say I, I need to, I need to be staccato here. Yeah. There's no, there's no formula to yeah. it. And that's probably why a computer won't be able to write a joke anytime soon because there, it's, it's, it's a lot of instinct and, and just repetition and and getting on stage every every night. I don't I would say if you had a choice between getting on stage and writing I would say get on stage but but there there's a there's a correlation. Well, I think there's, when you get on stage yeah. it is writing. Yes, it is yes, exactly. Exactly. And that and not and when that, you get on stage yeah, you're the, right. And that will work. be part of the part of the tip when once you get to the point where you can write quote unquote write on stage you're you're really in a great position. Yeah. But it doesn't come overnight. <laughs> So as I as I uh, mentioned, I read Ralph Waldo Emerson's Self Reliance because that was a tip. And a quote that jumped out at me was: "To believe your own thought, to believe that what is true for you in your private heart is true for all men, that is genius." I know that that consciously and subconsciously, I was thinking of that when I when I wrote this. This is the I mean the specifics are so so helpful to to making this joke work. And and it's interesting because I heard Penn and Penn no. T- the one that talks, Pendulet. Yes, the <laughs> one that talks. Talk about something that works versus something that's good art. Yeah. And with with in an interview with Brian Koppelman, and and you probably want most mostly stuff that works, but occasionally just throw in some stuff that's good art. In general, for a thing like this, how do you know a joke is done? And especially because. 
and maybe it wasn't. I mean, I had heard in interviews you weren't happy with the special. No, no, the the, the audience really wasn't that crazy about it that that night, and and I'll, I'll never understand what the what was it, what was it going on. And and I'll bet you they'll say they had a wonderful time and yeah. and they laughed throughout it. But I'd 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 heard better reaction to it. And does that I, make you think the joke? The jokes were not ready because there was an audience that was not responding the way the other audiences did. They were just weren't bulletproof, I guess. Yeah, yeah, which is which is fine now, but it took years of of thinking about it and and therapy and introspection and 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 antidepressants to to get to a point where I where I think that if that would happen again, I would I would say that would be fine. I remember. Mitch Hedberg's wife saying that he wasn't crazy about his special that made him so famous, the yeah. Comedy Central presents, and it's it it happens. I I I I've heard that from other comedians that they say, yeah, that this thing that made me so so popular didn't really play that well in the room. I I, w I will say that the the state abbreviations joke it, it played okay in the in yeah. the room that day, but. Not as well as things that nobody paid attention to. Yeah, I had better sets elsewhere with with less less popular jokes. So I I will say that that the joke is finished when you leave on a on a laugh and it's and it's strong. Hopefully it's not a hopefully it's not a callback <laughs> because that seems too too easy. But I, I remember reading the 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 Dante Club and one of the characters in the Dante Club. This poet named Lowell said that poetry, you write a hundred poems for every good one and you can never find an ending. And yeah. I, I feel the same way about jokes. I write a hundred jokes for every good one and it's so hard to find an ending. So uh, talking about the tips, beyond sort of why are you doing it, what is it, you know, you talked about, and you've talked about just sort of after this special, you had a hard time going back on stage. Yeah. Um, oh, my word. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and you you moved out of New York, and yep. then yeah. it was, and, but you then have moved back to New York. You've now yes. have, I think you've talked about, you have 90 minutes that you're touring with about yes. the depression. Yeah. So beyond sort of why you're doing the tips now, what does it mean to your relationship to yourself as a stand-up that you can do the tips now? The tips came from a, a whim on December 31st. Last year, I became vegan for New Year's, and this year, I wanted to do something, and so I, I had had a lot of coffee, I remember, and I, I feel like a god when I'm drinking mm -hmm. coffee in the morning, and I, and I was really jazzed, and I said to my, my girlfriend, I said, what do you think if I tweeted out comedy tips? And she said, I think the people would love it. And I said, all right. And then I just I just tweeted out, starting tomorrow, I'm going to write oh, a tip. I didn't realize. I every, you had already every stockpiled day. like no, 50. I only had one. Listen to your <laughs> sets and write down what you said. And I tweeted it out there. And, and so it's it's sort of one of those things. There's probably a motivational term for it where you, yeah. where you promise something that you'll have to yeah. come through with. And so I, I did that. But... Also, I, I think subconsciously, I, I hope part of it was this, this guilt that I have over and the gratefulness I have over this career 
that I've been able to build, fortunately, and feeling better, that I, I often work with comedians who I think are terrific on the road. Yeah. And I, I, one thing I try to do is get their videos to the booker for Conan, who, who is, is very generous with mm -hmm. watching people that I've recommended. But the other thing I was thinking was, I, I often say to them, I say, I wish I had the kind of power that it would take to give you a career yeah. because you're so talented. And, and so part of it was, I don't really have the time because I'm writing so much when I'm on the road. That's my best time for, mm -hmm. for writing during the day that I, I, I know there was a, a, a man who used to do like a workshop on Saturdays at the, at the clubs. And, and I was like, I can't do that because Saturday is such a great day for writing. But I can, and also I can tell you everything I know about comedy in about two hours. So yeah. I would love to be able to do that. And then, and then this idea came to me. Thank, thank goodness. And and so I've been, been doing that. And has, yeah, has it, the other you, thing yeah. is it holds me accountable because I can't tell everybody to write and not be right, diligent yeah. about my own writing. And also, it makes me hold myself to a higher standard because people are going to say, this is the guy who's telling everybody how to write jokes. <laughs> so, so I have to, I have to be on point with my, with my stuff. So tip 29 was feel like I'm too old. I've been doing it so long. I can't get any better. George, George Carlin said he really figured it out in 1988. Yeah. He was 51 at the time and he was George Carlin. Yeah. Uh, don't stop pushing yourself. You owe it to your audience and yourself. You're, uh, you're going to turn 49 this year. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, which is close to 51, close right. enough for me to ask this question. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel? Do you I feel like you really figured it out? Yeah, I feel terrific. Yeah, I just, I just, I, I, I feel very creative right now, and my output has been stronger than it's ever been. And I just, just feel like getting everything down while I'm, while I'm still, still feeling this, this well, and getting everything out there. Yeah. Yeah. As you write here, it's figured it out. What does it mean as a stand-up who's been doing it 20, I guess 25, 26 years? What does it mean figuring it out for you? Finding your voice, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that really was. And people will say, oh, Gary, you had a voice and you sounded like this for a long time. But, and that may have been the, the, the case, but I didn't, I, I didn't feel that way. I felt I was just writing joke to joke. And now I, I feel like I, I have a, a, for lack of a better term, a formula. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's intention. It's like, yes. I'm doing this on purpose. Yes. Not, not, it's, it's I mean, like, it's, the jokes aren't writing you, you're writing yeah. the jokes, right? right? It's like this joke many ways led you to how to write this type of joke. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And like, now you can do that. Yeah. There are a couple of things. Like one, one thing I always think of is, is John Singleton talking about the Boys in the Hood being the movie he went to. Yeah. To... USC film school to write. And so I feel like all these years of comedy, I've been writing words so that I could write this depression special. And then the, the other thing that I remember is from Richard Price wrote the screenplay to color of money that mm. Scorsese directed. So I don't know who came up with this line, but Paul Newman says to either Tom Cruise or Tom Cruise's girlfriend, you have to learn to be yourself, but on purpose. And I, I thought that was a, that 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 resonates, right? Yeah. Be yourself, but on purpose. So I thought that was. He, he says, "Can you flake on and flake off?" <laughs> uh, so that sound means it's time for our final segment, which is the laughing round. It's like a lightning round oh, okay. because it's comedy. It's a laughing round. Oh, I like it. <laughs> Thank you. You are uh, in the minority. Um, what was the last time you dunked? Probably at twenty-five. Do you have a joke? Joke like a street joke? A favorite? 
these two Jews are in front of a firing squad and one of them says to the to the man in charge of the, the firing squad, can I get a blindfold? And then his friend says, Murray, don't make trouble. <laughs> Do you have a joke that you wish you could steal in, in, in a way in which oh. it's another dimension where n- no one will know because this joke is just, it's your exact same life, but you have this joke. Oh, uh, Mitch Hedberg's Dufresne. Yeah, the Dufresnes. Yeah, people are missing. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a joke that never worked? You kept on trying. You think it's so funny. It never worked to a point where you could not put it in a sh- in a set, but you'll go to your grave being like, "This is really, really funny." Yeah, I th- I think the story of the the teacher who had the class vote on whether I should stay after school. Like someday I'll I'll make it make it work. We met recently at the Comedy yeah. Cellar. We also met very briefly, like thirteen years ago, at University of Maryland. When you were doing Torgasm. Oh, gosh. I don't remember any of it. What do you remember? I just remember having such a hard time with that with that tour because I was I was in a similar state of mind as I, as I was after this last special in that I had just come off last comic standing and I was touring and I couldn't come up with my next mm. round of, of good jokes. And in front of basketball arenas was not the place to try them out and so i was i felt very i i also felt like i was a, a satellite yeah i, I know mark Marin talks about that being a satellite comic i was a satellite comic of of the biggest comedian at the time and and at the time very few had ever risen yeah. to that to that level so it was very it, it was hard it was like I, I don't want to say I was Scotty Pippen, but I was maybe Steve Kerr or somebody on those Chicago Bulls teams who was a really, I was a good basketball player, yeah. but I was playing with Jordan. Yeah. Yeah. And so nobody really cared. I mean, the only, I don't remember any of the jokes Dane did, but I remember you did the cookies joke. Oh, cool. <laughs> Thanks, man. So we have, uh, we'll have one more thing. I've tried it once before. It did not work. Okay. Which is, uh, it's called punch up these tweets. So I have these tweets that I don't think are funny. I need to make that clear. I tried this once with Seth Meyers, and he's like, I have no improvements. But wow. you are a tinker of jokes. Okay. I'm going to show you a bunch of tweets that I wrote. Okay. Uh, pick any one uh, and be like, this is how you can improve this Okay. Tweet. I love this first one. <laughs> this, this, is is, this is great. Thanks. Yeah. Even if it's not funny, it maybe you say it probably won't be funny, but you will recognize people from your favorite MyGran ad. Yeah. You don't want to, you don't need the new potato chip flavors. Yeah. And I love Aug. And you'll think, oh, good for them. (laughs) Yeah. That's how you should do that one. That's how I would do it. I can only tell you how I would do it. Sure, yeah, sure. Yeah. And and let me me add, I would do this. I would do this. Hey, you can have it. Yeah, that's (laughs) such a great joke. The tweet was, I highly recommend going to see Improv in New York. I guess it could be funny or whatever. But more importantly, you'll start recognizing people in ads for migraine medications and new potato chip flavors and be like, oh, good for them. Yeah. And you're saying, take out and new potato potato chip flavors. flavors. And yeah, and... Try to shorten that as much as possible. Your favorite migraine medication commercial, I think, is a good way to to put it. Um, All right. Yeah. Yeah. You just. Oh, that was fun. You punched up that tweet. You succeeded. (laughs) The end. All right. Cool. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can listen to Gary Goldman's It's About Time wherever you stream music. Check GaryGoldman.com for more information about the Great Depression Tour. Follow Gary on Twitter for his daily tips at Gary Goldman. Good One is produced by Mike Comte with production help from Jessamine Molly and research assistance from Matthew Silver. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. 
Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. And hey, if you know anyone who might like the podcast, maybe tell them what the heck. You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. We're back next week with a new episode and a new joke. Have a good one. That was a HeadGum Podcast.